Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 194, Live the Questions. We're joined this week by Buddhist teacher Elizabeth Matisse Namgyal to explore the incredible power of asking open-ended questions. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I'm joined today over Skype with Elizabeth Mattis Namgil. Elizabeth, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with the geeks. We always love speaking with fellow Buddhist geeks. Uh, thank you, Vincent. And just a little bit of background information for people so they have a sense of kind of where you're coming from and what you're bringing to the conversation. You're the wife of uh, Tibetan Buddhist master uh, Zigar Kongtrul, and you're also a student of his. And you've helped edit a couple of his books and now are an author in your own right. Your most recent book was The Power of an Open Question, the Buddha's Path to Freedom, and it recently came out through Shambhala Publications. And that's a big part of what we're going to be talking with you today about is what is the power of an open question. Other things to mention that might be relevant or interesting, um, you did an incredibly long retreat there in the mountains of Crestone. You said six years you were on retreat? Mm-hmm. Wow. And were you sort of just in a, um, like a cabin that whole time, or what was the situation like? Yeah, we have a retreat center near my house, and we have about 13 cabins up there. So I have my own cabin up there and spent all that time up there. Yeah, I heard you doing a little event with Jack Cornfield a couple weeks ago, and you were talking about the view from your cabin and how beautiful it was. Yet at some points, it was like sort of looking at a brick wall. It was You're going through such difficult periods. <laughs> it was- yeah. It might as well have been a brick wall sometimes, but it's, I guess it's where you are in your retreat. Just, you know, it can be a beautiful view if you're staring at a brick wall, if your mind is, is relaxed. But if you're struggling, you can be looking at this incredible scene and it, it could be very painful and you can't really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. I think that's what I was saying. I can't remember exactly, yeah, but. No, that sounds totally, yeah, what I heard you saying there. It sounds like you went through these ups and downs for several years in that particular form. Mind is very rich, you know, it provides you <laughs> with a lot to work with, I think, in that kind of situation. Mm. It's wonderful. Mm. And I guess, you know, when we talk about open questions and as we go into some of these questions together, I'm sure you'll be pulling from that deep exploration of your own mind and sharing things that you've discovered and really appreciative to have that perspective of a very deep and grounded practitioner. So well, thank, thank you. you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, just to start, I figured a very simple question might just be, why is the process of questioning have so much power, so much potential? Mm -hmm. You know, what I've noticed is that when I ask a question, uh, my mind does not shut down around a conclusion. So it's very open, very open. And yet it's not a vague kind of openness. It's quite engaged and responsive to what's happening. That's kind of the nature of a question is that it's focused and attentive to what's happening in the world around us or what's happening, you know, in our own mind. So it's an engaged and open way of being. And this is a very strong kind of intelligence that comes from this because the mind is then protected from any kind of fundamentalism or I guess what I sometimes call being a knower. 
<laughs> I think we all have some experience of, you know, people who are knowers, who know everything and kind of talk at you and think they have the world kind of figured out. And sometimes these people have some information, although you wonder how they get all that information because they already know everything. There's this sense of just kind of being shut down around answers. And I think sometimes I see that in myself, that I have very strong ideas about things and my mind shuts down. So when you're asking a question, you're very much protected from being a knower. And yet you're also protected from being ignorant or not knowing because the mind is very awake and very engaged in what's happening I, maybe I can give you an example. Something kind of came to my mind recently. I, uh, I was in Ireland just last week, actually, teaching. And I was staying in a little house that was on a, a cliff overlooking the ocean. And it was just extraordinary. And I was so entranced by the sea and it's moving all the time. And you look at the sea and you think, what must be under there? The light changes in the sky and the color of the sea changes. So I was thinking it would be really impossible to say that you knew the sea. And yet, when you look at the sea, you see these little boats, you know, and sometimes you see a sailboat and you see that the sailor, whoever's on the boat, knows how to respond to the sea. They know how to change the sail when the wind changes. You know, they know when to tack. They know when to, you know, slow down and so forth that, you know, not knowing something and having a sense of awe or wonderment about something and being open in this way um, doesn't mean that you have to become vague or that it somehow impedes your intelligence, that we can actually respond much more accurately when the mind is open. So I thought that was maybe a helpful, it was helpful for me to watch this little tiny sailboat on this incredibly huge ocean and think about the sailor and how a good sailor would would know how to respond to the sea, but never say that he knew the sea. That would be very arrogant. I don't think a, a good sailor would ever say that. Mm. So, Yeah, I imagine sailors have a pretty healthy respect for the power of the sea. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you'd have to. <laughs> mm. The way that you begin this book, The Power of an Open Question, is by sharing one of your own personal questions or koans. I was kind of wondering, how do you specifically work with a question? Is it kind of like that you have a particular way of asking the question or is it just sort of there in the background while you're exploring other practices? I, w- I was interested in how you work with some of these questions. Yeah. Well, my mind is all there is is questions. It seems like sometimes the, the Buddhist practice for me has been so much more about asking questions and then finding answers. And I I was thinking maybe an example would be how I, I wrote the book, actually. You know, my teacher, Zygor Kontramiche, he asked me to write a book, but he didn't tell me what to write the book about. So I was thinking, well, you know, I've done a lot of studies, and I've studied a lot of texts, and I can write about kind of what I know, what I learned. But I really didn't want to write this book as a knower. And I thought, why don't I just ask my questions? So I had a lot of questions. I had questions about, you know, the practice. I have questions, um, very subtle questions like, you know, when you sit down and things arise in your mind, what do you do with this? This is like a very basic question for a practitioner, you know, what do you do with experience? That's a big question. Or I had questions about faith, a lot of questions about doubt. I'm very interested in doubt. Questions about my relationship with my teacher and so on. And sometimes I find in the Buddha Dharma we feel uncomfortable to ask these kind of questions, sometimes even to ourselves, you know, especially about doubt and faith and so on. 
But I wanted to ask these questions. It's like I took it as an opportunity for myself because I guess I feel that as human beings, we have similar questions. So if I just genuinely ask my questions, I could share my inquiry with others and that would be very beneficial for me and others. So I guess when I say open question, it's like questioning without looking for an answer. That's the open part of it. A lot of times we're seeking answers when we ask a question, but this is more setting ourselves up for just learning and being very open and being very focused. And what I found when I started asking these questions was that it's almost as if when you ask a question, the world responds to you. It's like I'd have a question and I'd just go to the bank and someone would say something to me that they were just responding to my question or I'd turn on the radio and I'd hear something that was like a response to my question or I'd sit on the cushion too. You know, I'd feel very stuck maybe in my writing and just this kind of openness or ability to be open and bear witness to my experience was a response to my question so that I was just getting this continual, I guess, information Sometimes I wondered, is it that the world was responding to me or is just when you ask an open question, you start to wake up to the world around you so much more. Mm. Um, So it's very powerful in that way. So it's not necessarily like you can intellectually ask it. Like sometimes I'd read books or I'd inquire and I'd talk to people. And sometimes it's just a matter of paying attention and being open. And sometimes it's non-conceptual, like I'm stuck somewhere. I don't know how to respond to something. So I sit and I in a very non-conceptual way, just bear witness to my experience. And I always find that there's a response, something enriching happens that makes my world so much bigger. To me, that's the practice. So it's not so much an intellectual having to figure things out, although sometimes that kind of thinking is inquiry is very helpful too. And you're mentioning faith and doubt and... um One of the questions I had for you, as you know, in the Zen tradition, there's a teaching on these kind of qualities that are really important for awakening. And two of them are great faith and great doubt. And they're usually, you know, kind of paired up as almost this paradox or this dichotomy. And um, I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about that, because it sounds like that's something that you've really reflected on and and wrestled with even. How you found these things relating, um, how they've supported your practice, just whatever you want to share about it. Yes, thank you for this question. I love these topics. Really think thought a lot about these two. And I can't say I've done so much investigation into the Zen tradition, although I'm very attracted to Zen, actually, and to the koan tradition. And it's something I have a good friend who's talked to me a lot about Zen and koans. And we talked a little bit about faith. Um, so I can just respond to it more in a fresh way in terms of my own experience, because I, I don't know as much about the Zen tradition, though I'm starting to learn. When I think of the word faith, I think, well, what does it mean, you know? And I think, well, faith means you don't know something, because if you already knew something, you wouldn't have to have faith in it. So there's that aspect of faith, that this not knowing, which I, I love, this not knowing. At the same time, faith seems to have a quality of being at ease or having a, a place to rest in this not knowing. When I look at that word, that's what it speaks to me about. So in a way, I feel like faith is a place that's beyond belief and doubt. It's more of this open questioning way of being. It's interesting. So I guess I'm thinking of doubt in a different way. Um, recently, I, I gave some talks on Tricycle. I did an online retreat for Tricycle, and 
a lot of it was about faith actually and a lot of people got on and they were very skeptical and they just heard the word faith and they reacted kind of negatively to faith but what i saw in um speaking with some of these skeptics they were wonderful for me actually these people who were kind of questioning what i was saying and we had this dialogue on on this blog site is that even the skeptics are really looking for something to have faith in everybody wants to know how to rest at ease and not knowing and uncertainty because that's where we all live. But it's so interesting in this way, it's like we, we're very connected to faith and looking for something to have faith in. And often, you know, we look in terms of money or ideas or relationships. And of course, this kind of um, is heartbreaking for us because my son once said to me recently, the only faith I have in people is that they're going to be themselves. You know, <laughs> you never know how you can trust something that's always changing and moving and so forth. So faith to me means being able to rest at ease in this not knowing, which is kind of points to that open question again, being open but responding, being able to respond to life in a very direct way. Now, doubt to me is interesting too, because sometimes I think doubt itself is a view, it's a belief. Doubts have a lot of assumptions to me when I look at my own doubts. And sometimes doubts seem like a reaction to beliefs. And I think sometimes this can be helpful. Uh, someone was just telling me recently, they went into a yoga class and there were some nuns, the Catholic nuns, but they had left the monastery and um, they were making fun of the Pope and laughing at the church. The person who told me said um, it was very helpful for them to see this kind of falling apart of beliefs, you know, because there's something very rigid and uncomfortable about beliefs. And I think a lot of people... Think, equate beliefs with faith. But then to fall into this other doubtful place, it's like, then what? Then what? It's kind of like in, sometimes in the body, we're not feeling well, we have a pain. And the pain is an indication that something is not right. So it's helpful to have pain. But in the end, pain is not helpful in and of itself. So I think doubts help us see that we're holding on to beliefs in a very strong way. You know, beliefs and doubts are so interdependent because we have beliefs because we're afraid of falling into some kind of meaninglessness and we hold on really tight. But then what happens when our beliefs fall apart is we fall into doubt. So you have beliefs on one hand and doubt on the other. And um, they both seem to have a lot of views. To me, this true faith doesn't have to do with views, but has to do much more with the ability to be open um, and not shut down around conclusions and ideas. For me, when I look at my own doubt, I find that my mind already has a lot of assumptions and is kind of closed. So I always wonder, you know, why be skeptical if you can be open instead? Skepticism and openness seem very different to me. Another question that came to mind, and I'm not sure, you may have covered it in the book, but I'm not 100% sure. I was just thinking about that quality that you're talking about of not knowing and how it can be so powerful to just not know a lot of the time. And I was wondering, in your experience, since you've really spent a lot of time cultivating that sense of not knowing and resting in that not knowing, if you found that it can be helpful to then bring that type of mind into relationship with other people, and if so, what does that look like when people are coming from a place of not knowing together? Mm -hmm. It's wonderful, actually. I think it's when you're in a relationship in the sense of being very open, you're able to listen to others. It's the most sane way, an accurate way to relate to the world, I think. 
because the world is moving and changing. It doesn't really lend itself to being known. Human beings, if you look at another person, they're always changing. They're always open to interpretation. Your understanding of who they are changes moment by moment. Sometimes they're creative. Sometimes they're destructive. Sometimes they're very fresh and <laughs> sometimes they're rotten. You know, sometimes you turn on the TV and, you know, you think, oh, human beings have got to be the lowest form of life on earth. And then, you know, all of a sudden somebody turns around and does something very touching and, and humane and amazing. So what is another human being? We don't know. So to shut down around a conclusion rather than being open and keeping others an open question is really not in accord with reality. Conclusions are static, whereas the world and other human beings are moving and changing. And I find personally that listening and questioning is the most powerful uh, way to engage. We have in our tradition, in the what's called the Majyamaka tradition, it's kind of a philosophical tradition or approach where there's this school called the Madhyamaka Prasangika, and their whole thing is about emptiness, the teachings on emptiness. But they never posit any kind of view or take any kind of doctrinal stances. But they have all these debates with other schools like Hindu schools and eternalistic and nihilistic schools. They engage in debate with these other ways of thinking. They, yeah, they never take stances. All they do is question the opponent. And it's extremely powerful because it brings out all the faults and inconsistencies in their argument. But you yourself are never taking a stance. And so while you, while you study this, you're really, really refining and clarifying your own mind. And yet you're, you never get stuck in any one kind of view. Or, you know, how Nagarjuna said about the Buddha, you know, I prostrate to he who has abandoned all views. You don't get stuck in a view. Views are very static. So there can't be any truth in a view. There can't be any truth in anything static. I think this path has to do with finding a way to stay amazed. In the sutras, it says, the Buddha said, those who are awake live in a state of constant amazement. I feel that this state of wonderment or constant amazement has so much to do with what the practice is about. So in engaging with others, I think having a sense of wonderment and curiosity about someone else is a beautiful way to engage another person in the world around us and in much more in accord with the way things are. Last question for you. As I was reading through The Power of an Open Question, I, I couldn't help but think back to some lines that I'd heard from the poet Rilke. He wrote, live your questions now, and perhaps even without knowing it, you will live along some distant day into your answers. And I was wondering if you could respond to that, because I know you've been talking a lot about not knowing, but I have a sense, too, that there's something beneficial. There is something that gets lived into as a result of not knowing, that it's not sort of just uh, not knowing, not knowing, not knowing, nothing changes, but that there is some sort of process of living into something. Could you say a little bit about that, how you would respond to that type of uh, sentiment from Rilke? Yes, I, I love that you asked me this question, just because when I was, I was just in Europe and, and teaching there, and somebody gave me this poem, and yesterday I just picked it up and read it. And it's wonderful. And I think it, it, it's interesting. Uh, this is like the third Rilke poem somebody has given me this year. So it must be maybe the way that I'm writing or what I'm talking about maybe connects with some of his writings. This is a really good question. I think what live your questions to me, live your questions now, he says, 
is like the question in some ways becomes the answer. Do you know what I mean? Like the answer can't be something static because there's nothing that is static. Everything's always changing and open to interpretation and a work in progress. So we never really find anything around us that's, that's static in that way. So we're looking for static answers and yet there are no static answers. So questioning in some ways, like I was saying before, is more in accord with the way things are. So this questioning becomes the answer means that we get to be open and engaged. We get to be full of wonderment. So it kind of brings us back to that quote, those who are awake live in a state of constant amazement. And there's a certain certitude that you find in this way of being, being able to live here in this place of amazement or wonderment. So in a way, the questioning is a path, but this way of being in an open question or living in the state of constant amazement is also the fruition. And the fruition has a tremendous certitude. You know, I think of my teachers, one of my main teachers was Dugo Kenziramche, and he's a great master, and he's tremendously confident and learned and awake. And yet what always struck me most about him was that he did seem to be amazed by life and amazed by everything. And there's this constant engagement, not engagement in, in the sense that you're losing yourself or veering from your practice, but that you're very present with everything and, and everything is new and there's no shutting down. There's this continuous ability to bear witness to life and to really enjoy life in a very full open way. So live your questions now, I guess, has this path-like quality that the question becomes the answer. And again, and you're saying here, perhaps without knowing it, you will live along some distant day into your answers. To me, that if there is an answer, it's is that everything is moving and changing and amazing. That's the answer, is this sense of wonderment. And there's a certitude in being able to bear that way of being you know, closing down around ideas. And then once we do that, we have to struggle, you know, with our wants and our not wants. And that's not the practice. So the practice is this kind of ability to live in accordance with the way things are, which is not static. You can't really pin it down. It's the fruition. I think you're asking a question about what's the fruition or where's the resting place. I think it has to do with finding a resting place in this fullness of being. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. 
You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.